You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Welcome to the Revision Path Podcast. My name is Maurice Cherry, and listen, we're about a month away from our 300th episode. I know I've mentioned that a few times, but I mean, it's a pretty big milestone. Six years, 300 episodes. You know, I think a celebration might be in order. So that's exactly what we're going to do. If you're in the New York City area, we want you to come out on June 14th for Revision Path's 300th episode celebration. It's going to be a really fun night. We've been planning this for a minute now. It'll be at the Green Space in New York City. And I'll be hosting a panel with three of our past guests who also happen to be some of the most esteemed designers in the industry. Gail Anderson, National Design Award winner. Eddie Opara, partner at Pentagram. And Kat Small, of course, friend to the show, but also senior product designer at Etsy. Listen, I'm telling you, you don't want to miss this event. Tickets are on sale right now. If you're listening to this, tickets are on sale right now. Go over to eventbrite.com, search for Revision Path, or check out the show notes for the ticket link. I'm telling you, this is going to sell out, so don't wait. Get your tickets today. All right, now for this week's interview. We're talking with Angelica Quixie, a service designer at Fjord in Washington, D.C. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. Hi, my name is Angelica Quixie. I'm a service designer with Fjord, which is part of Accenture Federal Services here in D.C. Now, what drew you to service design? I'm really curious. We've had, I think we've had some service designers here on the show before, but I'm curious to know, one, what drew you to service design? And if you can, you know, for the for the audience, talk a little bit about what that is. Sure. Um, I think what drew me to service design is it really looks at things as a system, it's, it's very holistic. So what service design is, is it's, it's designing a service from end to end, from front to back and in every channel. So when you're thinking about a process from end to end, it's similar to user experience design, interaction design, where you're looking at a user journey from when someone starts to achieve a goal to when they finish. But what's unique about service design is it's also including the front stage and the backstage of that service. So not only the customer experience, the front stage, but also the internal processes, the organizational components, the technologies behind it, and then in every channel. So while with interaction design, you might be looking at a single touch point, an interface, a website. With service design, you're looking at a lot of different channels from digital, phone, mail, um, face-to-face, even like your physical environment when you're looking at a service. So one of the examples that I tend to use is taking an airplane from, say, Seattle to Washington, D.C. Well, the service is everything from you know you want to go from Seattle to D.C., you go online, you search for a ticket, you purchase the ticket. Before your flight, you check in, you get to the airport, maybe you drop off your bags, you go through security, get on the plane, you have the experience being on the plane and then landing in your destination. So that would be the service from end to end. But there's so many components that are enabling you to have either a really excellent or 
potentially a negative experience when you're flying. So there's not just the folks that there's not just the interface when you're buying your ticket or when you're checking in on your phone or at the kiosk at the airport. There's also the people that you're interacting with when you're dropping off your bag and the TSA agents when you're going through security. And then there's the systems that they're using to process everything. And then there's there's the actual physical environment of the airport and of the plane. So if you're really imagining designing that entire service from end to end, you would be looking at a whole host of components in this system and all of these interacting pieces. So I think it's really cool because it's it, it touches so many different elements and it gets beyond just the digital component, but it also is uniquely suited to address organizational change, which I think is partly, I, I encountered service design when I was already working in city government and was seeing that a lot of the issues that we were trying to solve, even though I was working in the Department of Technology, were not just technological issues. And they really to, to improve the experience of residents in San Francisco, which is where I was working, really required you to work on all of these organizational challenges as well and get beyond just the what we would typically think of as design. Wow. It's funny you mentioned that, air, uh, that airline example because it just reminded me of something I read recently about how Delta is, is I think they're employing service designers or they're working with service designers for that very same example that you just gave, sort of like the end-to-end experience of if you buy a ticket on Delta's website, what's it like from there to getting to the airport, to getting on the plane, to the, like, what's the whole experience like? They want to be able to kind of interact and control that experience and make it as pleasant as they can for the customer. So that that is a lot of components to go into one thing for the the projects that you work on i'm curious uh and you don't have to name them specifically or, or anything but i'm curious to know do all of the projects that you work on normally have that many components to them or does it vary most of the projects i worked on at fjord have been really big projects that cross multiple agencies or multiple units within a single agency um, so when you first hear at the beginning of your project what you're going to be working on, you're sitting there thinking like, oh, my God, how are we going to improve the X experience for like this this huge process? But I think it's really exciting because one of the things that drew me to working in the government space is just the scale that you're working at and the number of people that you're impacting. So when you're making these changes and improving the experience, it's touching so many different people. And you're also, the the hardest part is really working across these silos and trying to get people to work together. So in your Delta example, like Delta is a huge organization. So you're going to have to be working across all the components of Delta. But then there's also parts of that experience that they don't control, like they don't control the airport or the TSA. So they have to find ways to integrate with these different organizations and work together and form partnerships in order to create a really excellent customer experience from end to end. What's a a typical day like for you at Fjord? Um, What is it like from day to day? There are so few typical days. I actually, I refuse <laughs> to schedule like lunches or coffees anymore during the day because my day shifts from moment to moment so often that I'm almost, I'm always canceling on people when I try to schedule things during mm-hmm. the day. So the only thing that solidly happens every single day is our stand up in the morning with our project teams where we all get on the same page. But then it it's, you know, planning, executing, synthesizing research. We might be 
doing stakeholder interviews at an agency or be out in the field interviewing users. We do a lot of design workshops. So really working with the clients to co-create the services that they're trying to build, which requires a ton of energy. And I'm a little bit of an introvert, but I really love facilitating these workshops and getting drawing the people out that maybe normally wouldn't contribute and getting these teams working really well together over the course of a day or two days. Sometimes our workshops are two or three days. And um, I, I'll give one example, which wasn't a, a client, but I volunteered to facilitate a workshop for International Women's Day last month around how to be a better ally and make more authentic connections. And we got 50 women in a room all from different parts of Accenture to really imagine like what being a better ally looked like. And then at the end and, and sort of like brainstorming around that, the different things that you could do, the different things that it meant, not only the actions, but like the emotions that went behind it, what people see, uh, what people say, what people think, what people feel, what they do. So building empathy maps around um, being a better ally and then at the end of the day, we actually had everyone fill out intention cards where they wrote down something that they were going to do in the next week, put it down their name and their number and exchanged it with someone so that there was some sense of accountability. And like coming away from that, I felt so energized and it felt like the people in the room were really energized to go out and really take action. So part of that is it requires a lot of energy on your part, but you're trying to impart that energy to your participants and get them really excited about whatever it is that you're trying to co-create. And in this case, it wasn't a service. It was like this very abstract concept of allyship and gender equality. But um, I really feel like the methods of design can be used in so many different ways. And this is this is one of those examples. Now, do you approach most new projects in the same way or does it does it vary? I feel like when I'm starting a new project, it often just starts with getting the team and the client comfortable with the ambiguity of service design, that things are going to change and iterate throughout the process. And it'll often start with reframing the question that we're being asked. So one of the icebreakers that I like to start with is this idea of drawing a vase. So if you were to ask the people in the room to draw a vase, they would all kind of come out the same. But then if you were to ask them to draw something that could hold flowers, you're suddenly reframing what you're asking, not as a solution, but as a challenge or a problem. And they might draw something Mm. different. So when someone comes and says like, okay, we want a dashboard, like, what is it that you're really trying to get at? You're trying to, this is actually an example of a project that I worked on that I really loved, where instead of starting with, okay, here's the data, how do we visualize it? What we did was we looked at, okay, what are the actions or decisions that you guys are trying to make and in what context? And then given that, what, what information do you need and what's the best way to present it? Are you going to be looking at it on a mobile device, on a computer, in low bandwidth um, uh, situations, or like in an a office with like great Wi-Fi? Like, what are the different contextual attributes that need to go into this too to help you make the right decision at the right time? So then you can take all of those elements and bring it together to build a dashboard that's actually going to serve your needs or even some other way of visualizing or communicating data that's going to help you make those decisions and maybe isn't what you imagined when you first came and said, hey, we, we want a dashboard. 
Yeah, being able to reframe questions, I always tell designers that's just a very important skill set to have, whether that's like questions coming from a client or it's coming from a supervisor or a stakeholder or something. Like getting to the root of what the question is actually about is really important because like you said, you can uncover new things, you can discover new kind of uh, paths to go on for the project just based off of what it is that they really are trying to get out of working with a designer. Absolutely. And it's it's good for your team too. Like when someone is stuck, like it can help to just reframe the question around what they're stuck on. Even trying to do that for mm-hmm. yourself. Like, you know, you can't figure this thing out. Like take a step back and say like what what is what is it that I'm really struggling with here? What is the problem? And and try to attack it from a different angle. Yeah. Now we've had designers on the show before that have worked either with the government or worked with government services in different ways. Like, for example, uh, episode 150, we had Ashley Axios, who was the uh, creative director for the Obama White House. We've had Ron Bronson, who I think currently is doing some work for 18F. Um, And I think it's important to note that while you're designing government services and you're working for Fjord, this does not mean that you are explicitly working for the current administration. I want to be clear for folks listening that there is a a difference (laughs) in those two things, that you're not directly working for the administration. So I'm working as a contractor now. Uh, So I I work for Fjord and I work with the administration or I work with the government, with different government agencies. I've never worked directly with the administration myself or or on any of my projects. But Mm -hmm. I actually really do admire the folks who have stuck around through the transition. There was a huge boom in an emphasis on technology and design in the government space under the Obama administration after the failure and then sort of revival of healthcare.gov because mm-hmm. there was this realization that the one of the president's signature policies was really reliant on the technology behind it. And that was the first time in history that that's ever happened. And it was, there was this sort of realization that if you don't get the technology right, it can really harm, it can make or break your your policy proposals and, and the, the things that you're trying to get done while you're in office. So 18F emerged, the U.S. Digital Service, the Lab at OPM, the Presidential Innovation Fellows. There's a whole host of programs that are bringing technologists and designers into government to work on different systems and projects. And some of those folks left when the administration changed, but some of those folks stayed because they're not, many of them, they're not working directly for the administration. And realistically, most of the people who work in the federal government aren't working for the administration. They were there under Obama. Some of them were there under Bush. And they're there really because they care about the work that they're doing. And they're delivering services, whether it be to veterans or immigrants or people people that are um, in, vulnerable, would need assistance with housing. You know, they work at HUD. There's so many elements and branches of the federal government that are evergreen. There's career civil servants that are going to be there no matter what. And they're they're the ones that are going in day in and day out. And I, I think we don't even hear about them until something like a government shutdown happens. And you realize like how many people are delivering, creating and delivering these services on a day-to-day basis, not just in DC, but in places like California and Colorado. Mm-hmm. 
um, that are, are going to keep doing it regardless of, of who's at the top of the food chain. Yeah, that's a really, really uh, good point that I want to really just kind of impress upon the listeners and make sure that they know that because it's uh, it is a privilege to work for the government. And again, like as we're saying, not for the administration, but be able to work for the American people and to make services that uh, will benefit them in the long run is a really kind of noble thing. And this is something that we touched on actually before we started recording is that there's no alternatives. Exactly. Like there in the private sector, if you don't like a product or a service, you can go to a competitor that has a different experience and a different offering. But when it comes to government services, you don't have another option. So there isn't an alternate DMV. There isn't an alternate provider of SNAP or food food stamp assistance. There isn't an alternate VA or um, immigration services. Like this is all you've got. And I think it's really incumbent on us to create the best experience possible because people don't have anywhere else to go. And I also wanted to point out that with when it comes to government ser- digital service delivery, it's not just the federal government. Like you have state and city government and actually city government is where my heart is because it's it's so close to people. It's where the rubber meets the road and it people really feel the impact of what it is that you're doing very quickly. So people notice when their trash doesn't get picked up. And and that's actually mm-hmm. at the state level is where SNAP benefits are distributed. And um, that's where, you know, so many programs occur for homeless individuals. And my, I began my career in government digital services working in city government. And that is long-term also where I, I hope to end up. I remember you also taught a course at Harvard, um, on technology and innovation in government. So I can tell this is something that is really like super important to you. And I think it's something that designers and developers should think about when looking for sort of the big projects to work on. Uh, yeah, it's it's cool to work for Apple or Dropbox or, or Netflix or whomever, but uh, to be able to impact as many people as you can at scale by being, you know, whether it's a service designer like you are or whether it's, working on the local level or the city level, state, what have you, uh, the kind of impact that you can make there that really affects people's lives uh, is something that I wish more designers would sort of just kind of explore as an option, like look at civic design as an option and not just sort of the boring work, you know? Absolutely. And I think there's so much space for people to get involved, whether it's you're making a career change or you're just volunteering your time. There's things like Code for America brigades that accept volunteers and work on different projects. Um, and I, there's all kinds of different projects that you can you can work on. Um, so there's healthcare. There's an incredible organization called the Center for Civic Design that does a lot of work on ballot design and um, looking mm. at how we design plays a role in our elections and the. Their um, civic design field guides are actually ended up in the Smithsonian. Like, there's so many cool things that you can work on that have this incredible impact. I think the scale that you're working on, I, I mentioned this before, but when you're working on government digital services, like, you are impacting millions of people's lives. Millions of people are using your your service, and and you just don't see that anywhere else in the private sector. How do you ensure that accessibility is factored into your work like throughout the design process? I think accessibility is something you need to be thinking about from the very beginning. Um, and it's not just like the the what 
what you would think about as like visual impairment or hearing impairment, there's things like color blindness. So the color palette that you choose should be able to be seen and distinguished for people who have red, green color blindness. There's the, and it's not just designers, it's, it's the people that create contact and uh, the information architecture, because you want to make sure that people with cognitive disabilities or um, people for whom English isn't their first language can also understand the content. I think government websites have a reputation for being full of jargon and legalese. And one of the things that I've really pushed throughout my career is to think about rewriting that stuff so that it's at a sixth or an eighth grade level. It's easy to understand. Um, it's, it's easy to translate as well. So I worked on my very first like government digital services project was the San Francisco business portal. And I was, you know, helping with design for that, but, but a lot of what I did was the content strategy and writing all the content on the website and, and rewriting it so that it was easy to understand and easy to translate. Um, a huge percentage of the population in San Francisco speaks Chinese and Spanish. So I speak Spanish and my boss who was leading the project also speaks Chinese. So we were sort of going through taking out idiomatic expressions, anything that didn't translate well, so that even though we couldn't afford to have a separate version of the website in Spanish and Chinese, it was just going to rely on Google Translate, we could at least make sure that the language would translate fairly well across the different languages. Now, I want to go back to when you and I actually first met up, which was in 2017, I believe. Uh, you were you were at Harvard. Mm -hmm. You were helping to plan the uh, the Black in Design Conference. What was your time like while you were at Harvard? I'm curious to know that. So I was there for three years. And the Black and Design Conference was by far one of the highlights of my experience there. I worked with a really wonderful team. I was, uh, it wasn't all people from the African American Student Union at the Graduate School of Design, but it was a lot of folks from that executive board. And then we also brought in some people from elsewhere and even some alumni helped uh, plan the conference. And it was huge. I think we had 500 people come in for that. And I think one of the things that was so wonderful to me about that conference was the positivity and the diversity within diversity. So first of all, like you get there and Harvard's a pretty white space. So mm -hmm. you just arrive and see all of this melanin, all of these black and brown faces and so much diversity within that, like people dressed in lots of different ways and people that are involved in lots of different parts of the design process, different age ages, all sort of coming together to talk not just about the problems facing the black community, but the various solutions that they're working on. I had been to a lot of conferences at Harvard and elsewhere, um, black policy conferences and, and whatnot, that were really talking about the challenges around healthcare, economic development, um, social justice. And I think what was so exciting about this was, was how positive it was. We were talking about the positive impacts that designers were making on mental health in Chicago, um, around mm -hmm. brown sites in New Orleans, um, Afrofuturism in Detroit, uh, and creating community in, in Seattle. It was just so inspiring to hear yeah. people 
talking about forward progress and the, the creativity and the things that they were excited about and the, the the impact that they were having in their own practice, whatever that might be. I mean, one person, she she was looking at different hair textures and she was taking pictures of people's hair and using it to inspire um, the 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 sort of like woven art that she did. There's just so much diversity in in experience and in the design practices and and people's experiences. I just, I loved it. And I was running around like crazy, like handing mics to people, <laughs> like going in the green room, making sure that everyone was all right, like trying desperately to find a place to put people's luggage because we hadn't thought about the fact that all these people flying in were going to need a place to store their luggage, like just sort of running mm -hmm. around and making sure that things went smoothly. But even though I barely had a chance to stop and and watch all of the um, the panels, and I did go back and rewatch them because it was all um, videotaped. So if you weren't there, you can still check it out on YouTube. But um, even that, like, I, I was still able to feel just so much energy in that space. And it's happening again next year. Oh, and next year or this year? Or this year? Sorry. This year, okay. I was, <laughs> <laughs> I was like, no, it's yeah. It happens every other year. So it started in 2015, and then 2017, and then this year, 2019. Um, I rave about that conference on this show so much. Oh my, like when I, I forget how I first found out about it. I, I don't remember when I first found, but I did go in 2015 and I just remember coming back and feeling whole because I've been to a lot of design conferences and events and meetups and stuff. And, you know, you go to these places and you're one of the few people of color. You might be the only person of color, um, and then that automatically creates like a barrier in a way between you and the other attendees. Like they may not want to talk to you. You may not be sure about talking to them, that sort of thing. Uh, and granted, I've gotten more comfortable with that over the years and learned to break through that. But it's still something where like I'll, I'll go to events here in Atlanta and still be one of the few people of color. And it's it's Atlanta. Like, <laughs> like it's pretty it can still be pretty jarring at, at times, but. I mean, I, I went to the, the first Black and Design conference and it was something where I felt fulfilled, not just as a designer, but as a black person as well. Mm -hmm. um, and it was like you said, it was very positive. It was all about solutions. Um, I remember the, the first year, the, the focus was on, um, I think, space mm -hmm. or spaces or something to that effect, where they started at the neighborhood and then it expanded out to like the city and then the state and then the region. And so they had designers that talked about the work that they did, whether it was organizing like a community dinner or whether it was building a huge plaza as a monument to like the transatlantic slave trade, mm -hmm. like seeing how people took design and applied it in such varied and different ways was just astonishing to me. I mean, I left there and I was like, Oh my God, I have to find out. How do I be a part of this? How do I help? And, you know, we sponsored, we helped sponsor the, the 2017 event. But I really, I mean, I told as many people as I could on this show and outside of this show about that event. I was trying to get AIGA involved in it and like, oh, you also really sponsor this and this sort of thing because AIGA claims to be about diversity, but that's a whole other conversation. <laughs> but like, I was trying to get just, especially black designers also interested in this as well. And the one criticism that I got back was that they thought that it would be more, I guess, 
you like like you know like you said the videos are on on youtube so for 2015 and 2017 we'll put links in the show notes where you can check them out but people saw them and thought it would be more i guess technically oriented mm-hmm. like i guess they were expecting to go and learn the newest coding framework or the newest photoshop plugin or something and i remember having to tell people like design is not just what's on the computer mm-hmm. like I think what people should look from this as, I mean, yes, it is inspiration about what can I do to apply the design skills that I have outside of whatever it is that I work with. Um, And I would say to that effect, the 2017 event did seem to be a lot more broad in scope. I forget what the theme was for 2017. I think it was something about like community or, or something to that effect. Do you remember? It was designing resistance building coalitions. There we go. Yeah, design because I remember uh, DeRay McKesson was one of the the speakers for that, or he was the keynote speaker. Yeah, he was he's a keynote, and he's not typically considered as a designer. I think one of the things that I was really pushing for was to broaden our definition of design and who can be considered a designer, mm-hmm. and and we invited a lot of people that were involved in in organizing and in different ways of building community that wouldn't typically wouldn't have gone to art school for example and I know you have a a different background like you didn't go to art school but you have found your way into the design profession and I well I eventually went to design school but had come from a very different educational background yeah like I started as a well my degree is in is in math my undergrad's in math my graduate degree is in telecommunications management and I do design like it's completely (laughs) like outside of the scope of both of those things but um i would say one thing that was different aside from just sort of the scope of the event one there was more people Mm -hmm. so more people found out about it which was great but i also thought it was interesting that some of the same naysayers that were like oh i don't know if i should go to this event they were there (laughs) they showed up and they enjoyed it and they were like oh this is like some of them were saying it was it sort of felt like a family reunion in a way because you got to see not just other people that you knew, but like people that you maybe had heard about or read about or something. I mean, it was, it was great. I definitely will be back this year. I hope we can find a way, uh, whether it's through revision path or through glitch to help sponsor this year's event. Um, I think it's just super important to the entire design community, not just in terms of it being, you know, quote unquote, a, a black Mm -hmm. event. I, I don't want to say that it's important just because of that, but because of, like you said, the diversity that's there, the positivity, the solutions that come out of that. You don't have to be a black person and go to black and design to be inspired. Like it's it's just a great design event, period. So hats off to you and to the rest of the folks that put it together. I mean, I know, like you said, y'all were running around trying to make sure everything <laughs> went smoothly. From the attendee end, everything was was great. I loved it. And I can't wait to go back this year. I'm so glad to hear that. And I'll definitely be back. But it was it was really a, a family effort, too. It, it was an incredible group of people that worked on it. And shout out to Natasha and Chandra, who I know are hard at work right now planning for the next one. Nice. And now you're in you're in D.C. So what what is the D.C. design scene like for you now? It's so funny having come from this wonderful close knit community. I've only been to a handful of design events here in DC. And it it just doesn't feel I don't have that same close knit feeling of community. And I feel like a, a lot of what I'm doing is building community on my own here, like meeting people in different, different spaces who want to get in who are, are working on design from different perspectives and kind of 
building my own small group of folks. But mm-hmm. I, I think, I think also like there just is a little bit less wind in the sails of some of the civic designers than there may have been under the prior administration. So one thing I'm thinking about Mm. doing is try to do some sort of convening of people in the civic design space here in DC. Interesting. I guess I could see that with certainly all the news that seems to come out of the administration lately is mostly negative or scandal written. And it would make you think, well, why do I want to contribute my skills to something like that? I would guess, but uh, I could, I could see why that could be the case though. Yeah. I'm, I, I don't know what exactly. I think there was just a level of excitement, partly because it was also so new and you were bringing in people from lots of different places. Um, and so now it's it's a matter of thinking about how to sustain that effort, sustain mm-hmm. that enthusiasm. And again, I, I don't work directly in the government, but I, I have a lot of respect for the folks at 18F that are in the PIF program at USDS that are going in day in and day out and working in these spaces and working alongside their um, government uh, colleagues to to improve government sur- services on the ground. I think it ebbs and flows, too, because certainly around the midterms, I mean, there was a, a flurry of activity around, you know, getting people elected and making sure people turned out to vote and things, which is great. But like, in the in the years when it's not an election year, it's it's almost like radio silence, which is bizarre to me. You would think you'd want to kind of keep that momentum going. Like I guarantee, by the time by this time next year, it's going to be designers are going to be interested and they're going to be getting out there and doing stuff. And it's like, how do you keep that momentum going to continue to innovate on government services when it's not just getting your favorite candidate in office. And I will say there's a difference between politics and governing. And one of the things I've seen is some of my design colleagues in the civic space moving more towards political tech and political design. So thinking about how to support campaigns and mobilizing people in a very different way than when you're just thinking about delivering government services, just more of a long-term and uh, some would say more boring effort. Like it, you think about bureaucracy, but again, I, I mm-hmm. think it's so impactful and I'm not drawn to politics at all. Like I think I got into the <laughs> government space and was like, I hate politics and uh, was really just k- kind of turned off by it. And I, I, yeah. since I've been in this space, I realized like how important it is and how they go hand in hand. But they they are very different and they come with uh, different expectations, different a different pace as well. Um, and I, I actually think one thing that's interesting about the those two pieces is the political tech has gotten better faster. And so you have these these politicians mm. and people that are running that have really incredibly sophisticated tools and then they get elected and they come in, you they put this like hunk of metal on their desk and they're like what is that and it's like their their desktop computer for their term and so i i think that that actually might be one thing that's inspiring people in the government space to pursue better technology and design because they get access to these incredible things when they're running and then they get into office and it's a whole different story Mm -hmm. I, i can tell you 10 years ago 
uh, of the date that we're recording this. We're recording this um, in April 2019. But 10 years ago, I worked on a political campaign uh, for a woman. She was running for the mayor of Atlanta. And I was working kind of, you know, with new media and stuff. And this is the first set of races after Obama got elected. So everything that we know now about tech and campaigns and things like that didn't exist really 10 years ago. So this is the first set of races where we're trying to like figure out how can we use MySpace to connect with voters? You know, <laughs> you know, how can we use how can we use Twitter to get to get out the vote? You know, and really doing a lot of trial and error and trying to figure out what works, what doesn't work. Um, I can totally understand about being turned off by the politics part because now I think certainly um, we're still kind of feeling the effects of how technology has affected politics from the 2016 election. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can see why that would sort of turn people off. Like it certainly turned me off. Like once I did that first uh, kind of just municipal race, I was like, I don't want to work in politics. I, I would prefer not to know how the sausage is made. Now that I see it, it's like, yeah, I'm good. <laughs> I, I like ignorance is bliss. You hear, you know, you hear that saying, I'm like, I get it. I, I don't, I don't want to know. I'm good. Um, but yeah, being able to work on the the end of, you know, making services that will help people out. Certainly, I think it's just more rewarding. It's not partisan. Um, And you're like you said, you're helping people directly. And it can be something as small as, you know, going to a neighborhood meeting and helping design flyers Mm -hmm. or talking to your city council about something. It can be the the things that you can do to get out there and start getting involved is really small. Um, And I think people might get political design or working in politics and working with government confused like you said there's a difference between those two but the actions on actually just getting involved are pretty small absolutely and and i i think there are there like you said there's there's small ways you can get involved you can do flyers for your local city councilor's office or for events and all the way up to joining something like a digital service team um, but mm-hmm. there's there's lots of ways. I, men- I mentioned those Code for America Brigade teams earlier that you can yeah. volunteer your time and 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 it, it just experience like what it's what it's like to work in this space. When you look back at your career, what do you wish you would have known when you first got started? I think I wish I'd felt comfortable calling myself a designer earlier. OK, so like I said, I I studied history in college and I was kind of. I had been drawn to design work for a while. I had this incredible graphic design teacher, Judy DeFord, in high school that I took her graphic design class and she pulled me aside the first week or two and was like, I want you to join our yearbook staff. And then I became our design editor and just spent so much time in our little design studio. It became sort of like a second home for me. And I continue to do design work on the side throughout college, like you said, like making flyers for different events. Um, actually, speaking of politics, like making the campaign posters for my friends who were running for, you know, vice president of the student council or what have you. And mm-hmm. and then continued to find ways to do design work afterwards. And it took until I went, got two master's degrees, <laughs> graduated <laughs> and finally got a job where designer was in my title that I felt comfortable calling myself a designer, even though I'd been doing design work all along. And I think 
we need to get out of this mindset where the only people who get to call themselves designers are people that went to art school and and were trained in this really technical way. Because I, I think there's a lot of opportunities to bring people in that have different perspectives and different skills, especially on the design research side, like people that are in the social sciences and sociology and anthropology who have a lot to contribute when it comes to the qualitative research that can inform design that we don't think that they get to call themselves designers, but they they really have a special skill set and perspective to bring to this field. Now, you mentioned this this high school uh, design teacher, but did you have any other like mentors or people that kind of helped you along the way or helped influence you or anything? She was a big one early on. And then when I was in grad school, I had a really great professor. I never actually took a class of his, but I, I became his research assistant in the first couple weeks of grad school. And I worked with him all the way through those three years. He was the one who I developed that course with and helped teach a class on technology and innovation and in government. He was the mm-hmm. deputy CTO under the Obama administration. So he had experience in government and in the private sector. And he was in extraordinarily encouraging, you know, encouraging me to not just help, you know, develop and facilitate the class, but get up and teach certain concepts and be really hands-on about coaching different student groups, um, encouraged me and and helped me sort of find the right role for me after school. And then this year, he actually asked me to come back and guest lecture. So that was a really special moment. You know, neither of my parents have bachelor's degrees or went to college. And so the idea that I would go to a place like Harvard for grad school and then a year later come back and be teaching graduate students mm-hmm. there was just this really incredible feeling. And I got to come back as a practitioner who's now working in the service design field to talk about the different methods that we use for synthesizing design research and and just sit with the teams and, and learn about what they were working on. And that just felt so special to me. Now, for people that are listening, what advice would you give to somebody that maybe wants to either like follow in your footsteps with your career or with getting into service design? What kind of advice would you give? So one of the pieces of advice that Nick, the professor I just mentioned, gives, he at the end of the year, he gives these like 10 pieces of advice. And the top two are just to work hard and be kind. I think that that's really important. But then the second Mm -hmm. piece of advice is not to think about the job that you want to do, but to think about the impact that you want to have. And I think that's guided me. This job isn't one, the one that I have now isn't one that I knew existed when I was in high school or in college. But I kind of found my way here by understanding not the title that I was after, but the kind of impact, the kind of work that I wanted to do, the impact that I wanted to have on the world. And that's what keeps me motivated too. Like when I was working in the city of San Francisco, I ran this big design workshop out in a neighborhood helping people that lived there sort of reimagine this one particular turnaround where the light rail ended and brought in designers to work with them to sketch out what it was that they wanted and invited the city council there. And the city councilor ended up giving the community $10,000 to imagine what they, to, to, to realize what they had, had created that day to, to implement some of it. And afterwards 
one of the women came up to me, her name was Diana Rivera, and she'd lived in that community for like 30 years. And she told us that, um, that that was one of the best days of her life. And she really felt heard for the first time by her government. And that is the kind of impact that I want to have, like helping people, helping them feel heard, helping them interact with their government, get the services that they need. So knowing that that was the direction that I was going kind of helped be my North Star. And I figured out the job title along the way. Nice. Where do you see service design going into the future? Uh, That's a great question. Um, I think service design is so new in the U.S. Like, I think part of it is just expanding here and people knowing what it is. Like, so many of my classmates had never heard of this field or job title before. And it's, it's a much more mature practice in Europe, but it's still really new here. So I think just becoming more mature here in the U.S. and then specializing a little bit. Like right now, service design is pretty broad. People feel like they can apply it to anything and they can, but maybe you'll start to find service designers who focus specifically on healthcare or who's focused specifically on financial services or um, who focus specifically on government services so that you start to get not only the design expertise, but some of the domain expertise that helps you think about longer term solutions. And one of the things that I'd like to see in the government space is to not just be applying service design to implementation, but to look upstream at the policy decisions that are being made and think about how you can inject user research and service design upstream in that process. So you're not just implementing something when it's already come down the road. What's next for you? Like what, what kind of work do you want to be doing in the next, like, let's say like five years or so? I think my ultimate goal is to be the chief digital officer or chief experience officer for a major American city. Um, Shout out to my hometown of Seattle, Mayor Jenny Durkin. I'm, (laughs) (laughs) I'm available. (laughs) I mean, not, not right now, but like that I think is my long-term goal to be back in city government and to be thinking holistically about all of the services that a government provides and not just, you know, looking at the website, but how do we deliver services in a user centered way, um, unified across government agencies, um, and, and just like really keeping residents at the heart of everything that we do. All right. Well, just to kind of wrap things up here, where can our audience find out more about you and about your work online? I have a website. It's uh, angelicaquixie.work, but I'm super active on Twitter. So you can find me on Twitter at angelquixie. The last name is Q-U-I-C-K-S-E-Y. All right. Sounds good. Well, Angelica Quixie, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. I mean, I think, first of all, I want to thank you really for the work that you've done with Black and Design. I really cannot stress enough how much of an awesome thing that is to exist, but also talking about the work that you're doing with service design and talking about how other designers can really get involved in all of this. I think it's really helping at this point to show what people can do with design to show that there's not just one way to get into design. And that I think also that design isn't just a like computer aided visual type of thing. You can't design services that can help people. You can design things that can really make an impact at scale. And so 
I hope that people will listen to this and really kind of learn something and hopefully go into the field. So thank you so much for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. It was a real pleasure. Thoughts of love are and that's it for this week. Big thanks to Angelica Quixie and thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Angelica and her work through the links in the show notes at glitch.com forward slash revision path. Revision path is a glitch media network podcast that is produced by Deanna Testa and edited by Brittany Brown. Our intro voiceover is by music man, Dre with intro and outro music by yellow speaker. We're also powered by Simplecast, the easiest way for podcasters to publish and distribute audio on the internet. Make sure you check the show notes for a link to sign up for a 14 day free trial. And if you like this episode, then please let more people know about it by leaving us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. We've already got over a hundred five-star reviews, which is dope. It only takes about a minute or so to do. It really helps spread the word about Revision Path everywhere. Plus, you can find us not just on Apple Podcasts. We're on Spotify. We're on Google Podcasts. We're on SoundCloud. Basically, anywhere that you can find your favorite shows. And make sure you're following us on social media as well, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Just search for Revision Path. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.